right, welcome to this week's Chinwag edition of the Sword and Staff. I'm one of your hosts, Josh Robinson, and joining me today, as always, is my co-host. Richie Brock. And on today's episode of the Sword and Staff, Richie and I are separated. We're doing this over Zoom, so if there are lag issues or anything like that, work with us on on today's episode. We're we're a little bit we're separated because of life circumstances and you know that that kind of thing. So, uh, but we're going to be doing our best to bring you guys uh, this week's chinwag. And we're not happy about it. (laughs) Yeah, we're not happy about having to not uh, we're not happy about not being able to be in studio today and uh, have this conversation face to face. But, you know, how life goes sometimes, that's how things work out at times. And so that's where we're at. But we're really happy that we're going to be able to bring you guys an addition this week. And we've already had people asking us because we were a little bit behind this week. Hey, is there going to be a episode this week? Uh, so we I know that you guys are eager to hear us have a conversation with each other and I'm eager to have this conversation today as well, Richie. I think it's going to be, I think we've got some interesting things to talk about. So, um, so in today's edition, we're going to be reflecting on our spiritual beings finale that we had last week. We closed out talking about demons and spirits of the dead. So we're going to be reflecting on that a little bit, um, and we're going to be diving a little bit deeper into what we referred to last week as the messianic profile. We talked about that a little bit last week with Jesus casting out demons and the whole him being referred to as the son of David thing. We also had some questions come up in our uh, Sword and Staff Facebook discussion group. Uh, One of the questions was on an occult text called the Keys of Solomon. There's the lesser key, and you know I think there's another one called the greater key. Um, so that kind of fits into this messianic profile conversation we're going to have today. And then the last thing that we're going to talk about on today's episode is a question that we also received in the sword and staff Facebook discussion group, which, which was, can we get back to the garden? So, uh, we didn't want to answer it there because it's a really, uh, nuanced answer. And we thought that it deserved a full discussion. So that's what we're going to be covering in today's episode. So we'll go ahead and get right into it. So Richie, what was your thoughts on the spiritual beings finale? Um, it was probably my favorite episode so far. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it was, it was my favorite one as well, mostly because it was the first one that we got to do in studio face to face. So that, you know, we, we, we got to, to bro out for like two and a half hours. <laughs> so that was, yeah. a, that was a, uh, an awesome part of it. And I think that just even content wise, I think that it was one of my favorite episodes. It, it, yeah. it's, there's just a lot of interesting concept, uh, a lot of interesting content that goes into the biblical uh, category of demonology and how that works its way through the Bible. And I, you know, I remember learning about that and having my mind blown by it and still yet today, even after teaching this con this content in our local church and, you know, discussing it, you know, here and there on sword and staff, it's still yet content that blows my mind. So, uh, you know, it it was still, it was a really fun episode for me too. So, so one thing that I wanted to have a conversation about here, since we were talking about spirits of the dead last week was a text that actually comes up in the New Testament that uh, some people actually use to uh, try to prove that Jesus was guilty of necromancy. And we didn't mention this in last week's uh, episode, 
Uh, it was something that we come across this week and we thought that it would be super interesting to have a conversation about this week as we were f- reflecting back on last week's episode. So the accusation is that Jesus uh, is guilty of necromancy in uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17 in the text that we know as the Transfiguration. So if you guys are familiar with that story, you're aware that Jesus is talking with spirits of the dead, right? And so uh, the text reads this. After six days, this is starting in verse 1 of chapter 17 of Matthew 17. Uh, it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up onto a high mountain by themselves. So we talked about this text a little bit last week in uh, the episode. This is Mount Hermon, right? This is the mountain uh, which the, the watchers episode happened from Genesis chapter six, but it says that uh, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared on them uh, with them, Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Elijah or one for Moses. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and, the, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And then as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them. He said, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples said, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. And so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that they were speaking to him, uh, that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So, Interesting text, right? A text that we didn't talk about last week. It seems as though Jesus is guilty of conversing with the spirits of the dead, right? But it's not really quite uh, what's what's going on here. Yes, Jesus is speaking with the spirits of the dead. But I think that here's what I would say. And Richie, you can feel free to chime in on this. Uh, I think the thing that distinguishes what Jesus is doing here from necromancy is the intention and the means, right? Right, right. Yeah. So, so, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but necromancy is, is a way in occultic practices to gain information from the dead, right? Right. That's, that's what necromancy is. It's using anti-biblical or, you know, occultic practices to try to gain that type of thing. And, and that's not what's going on here in the text, right? Jesus isn't trying to get information from Moses and Elijah, and he's also not using occultic practices to, for that to be able to happen, right? So there's a different intention happening here. Jesus isn't trying to, to, to gain knowledge from the dead. And there's also a different practice going on here, right? He's not using occultic means to have this conversation with Moses and Elijah. So I, I don't think that this is necromancy. I think that this is just uh, the reality of the universe that we live in. And I think that this is something that we, we, we need to get comfortable with as Christians, um, especially Protestant Christians. 
Um, I think that this is something that that uh, some in their higher church traditions just naturally understand, and and by that I mean our Catholic brothers and sisters, our Orthodox brothers and sisters, and even some of our Anglican brothers and sisters. They realize that we live in a world where there is an overlap. Um, between those who are in the church triumphant and those who are in the church militant, which is us here on earth, right? That, and that there are right. at times um, interaction between these two groups, right? And that the scriptures actually teach that God is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. So in some sense, they are actually more alive than we are. And we actually see that here in the text, right? Like it appears that, that Elijah and Moses are much more alive than, than what people would think, right? They're actually making an appearance here in this text. But, you know, the reality is this, folks. We live in a universe where there, there is interaction between uh, the eschatological church and the historical church. You know, the writer of Hebrews, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in the coming weeks whenever we, uh, we start our series on reenchantment. But the author of Hebrews actually like like explicitly talks about this. You know, he talks about there being this whole great cloud of of witnesses that uh, you know that is in heaven and that they they're watching the thing, they're witnessing the things that are happening on earth, and you know, so there's that whole thing. But he even goes as far to say that even in our worship, there is this overlap in realms between the seen and the unseen, but where, where the eschatological church is present or the church uh, uh, the church uh, triumphant and with the church militant or the historical church. So I want you guys to listen to what he says in Hebrews uh, 12, starting in verse 22. He says this, and he's talking about the church. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, get this, verse 23, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the writer of Hebrews says that whenever we come, when we gather together as the church, that we come to the heavenly Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, right? So that ought to that ought to take us back in some ways to Genesis, right? And, and what's going on there in Genesis, right? Genesis, right. Uh, the Garden of Eden is the heavenly, th- it's the, the throne of God on earth, right? It, it is the throne room of God. And there we see that heaven and earth, the seen and unseen overlap. And there are angels there, right? There are spiritual beings there. And the writer of Hebrews here in this unit says that the same is true with the church, Right, that he says that whenever we come together, this is the heavenly Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says that we worship in verse 22 in the presence of innumerable angels in festal gathering, even though we can't see them. Right, they are present with us in our gathering and in our worship. And that's not all that he says in verse 23, he is very, very clear 
that whenever we do this, whenever we assemble together, he says that we come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to the spirits of the righteous who have been made perfect. Right? This is the great right. cloud of this is the great cloud of witnesses. These are those who have went before us in the faith, who have died as martyrs, who have just who have lived their lives and died in Christ, and who have been enrolled in heaven. Whenever we come together, whenever we gather together as the church, this is the language I've been using, and I stole it from the the, the show Loki, right? And we've we've talked about this a little bit. It, the, it is a true eschatological nexus event, right? That's what worship is, right? It's this moment where the past, the present, and the the age to come, the future, all converge, right? We are here present as the historic church, and the saints who have went on before us in the faith, the eschatological church, they are there with us present in our worship. And then the age to come, heaven, right? God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the angels, the writer of Hebrews says, says that they are there with us present in our worship. So folks, I think that we just need to get comfortable with the fact that we live in a world where the seen and the unseen overlap, right? And and not all contact with the dead is necromancy. Necromancy is using occultic practices, means not ascribed by God, to get in contact, to solicit communication, and to gain knowledge from these beings. And that's not what we are doing in our worship, and that's not what Jesus is doing here on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, Richie, you got anything you want to say or comment on? Um, not really, not right now. Thank you. Summed it up pretty good right there. Well, thank you. Well, it, it's, it's, uh, I just, I really do think that, it, you know, this objection, uh, I mean, I think that it comes from a misunderstanding of what necromancy is, number one. It does. And then the, the, and there's this type of just uncomfortableness as, as being a Protestant, right? That right. like we're, we're like, you know, there's this skepticism of, you know, higher church traditions, like, like giving a foothold or a way to, uh, you know, things like prayer to the saints and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Like there's this, this uncomfortability with that. Right. So I understand where this is coming from, but the reality is this, is that whether you like it or not, that overlap is there, right? It, it doesn't right. matter. It doesn't matter if you like it or not, it's there. Scripture clearly teaches it in Hebrews 12, and in, in other places in the scripture as well. So, so anyway, um, but we thought that that would be an, an interesting conversation to start us off with today, since we didn't cover it uh, last week. But I think that, that that also takes us into another one of our topics that we wanted to talk about, which was the messianic profile. So last week we talked about uh, the messianic profile, right? We were talking about demonology, uh, and we were talking about Jesus coming off of Mount Hermon uh, in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, 17. And then, you know, one of the, the things that he does uh, as soon as he comes off of Mount Hermon is he casts out a demon at the end of the chapter, you know, in verses 14 through 21. Um, so, and one of the interesting right. things, one of the interesting things that you see is that whenever Jesus is casting out demons, 
or when he's going to do a miracle or, or something like that, um, there's this title that's always given to him by the people or even by the demonic entities themselves, which is the son of David, right? And so one of the examples that we see that, see this in is in Matthew 15, uh, verses 21 through 28. And it says this, when Jesus had uh, went away from there and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, uh, behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. She said, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. And he answered and he said, I was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then she came and she knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and he said, it is not right to take from the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as your desire. And then her daughter was healed instantly. So no, there's a, there's a lot going on in this text, obviously. Some of it that we're just not going to cover in this episode. But I want you guys to see that this is one of the places where there is a connection between the title of the son of David right and with jesus so why why do you think that is right why is there this title of the son of david and we talked about it again last week um what it is is there was this what mike heiser uh, this really comes from him um mike heiser calls it the messianic profile right and so during this time there was this understanding just in the second temple period, right? This is from the time that Israel built the second temple after the Babylonian exile to the time that it was destroyed in AD 70. That's the second temple period. There was just this expectation in this day that whenever the Messiah come, whenever he came, um, that he would cast out demons, that he would be... Um, right. Yeah, and that he would be the he would be the son of David, and that these would be some of the marks um, that that uh, that came along with this messianic figure. And so, uh, one of the places that we see that uh, where this theology really gets started is in First uh, Samuel, right? And so, in First Samuel, everybody's aware of this is before David is is king, right? Uh, this is whenever Saul has been anointed as king. Um, he, it, we see that he is troubled by spirits, right? Um, and this is whenever he's in Saul's service, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but in First uh, Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 14, we see that the spirit of the Lord, he departs from Saul, right? Saul's, Saul's uh, he's not been faithful, right? Um, the Lord rejects him. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit in, in the previous episode, and we talk about how this culminates in his necromancy with the, the witch of Endor and that kind of thing. But in verse 14, we see this. It says this, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. 
And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who were before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from, the, from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and I will bring him and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Right? So we, there's a connection already to uh, Jesus. Right. Yep. Verse 18, the, Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. He is a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, uh, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine. There's a second connection. Jesse sends yep. his son, David, into from Bethlehem right, with bread and wine. Obviously, right. that's, there, that's, that connects in with the, the sacraments right, of the Lord's Supper, yep. uh, the bread and the wine that Jesus breaks at, in the Lord's table at the Last Supper, right? And it says, uh, David came to Saul, and he entered his, ser uh, his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. <clears throat> and Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And then whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So this is where the messianic profile, this that the son of David would begin to cast out demons, right? We see it actually here with David himself. Now, David obviously isn't performing a, an exorcism as we know it and as we see in the, the New Testament, right? But he is, um, right. he is uh, doing ministry here in his playing of the lyre. And whenever he does this, we see that Saul is refreshed and he was well and that the harmful spirit would depart from him, right? So now this gets carried a little bit further, um, further on with Solomon. Now, as far as I know, there is nothing in the scriptures that talk about Solomon uh, casting out demons or driving out demons. But, but I will say this. There is an entire Solomonic tradition in the Second Temple period, and this is going to lead us into a conversation about the keys of Solomon. Um, there is a tradition in the Second Temple period that people are very, very familiar with in this uh, in in the New Testament, and you know when Jesus is is on the scene. Um, there's the Solomonic tradition where Solomon actually casts out demons. And it's uh, right. it, and I actually have it here in front of me. This comes from the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, Volume One, Apocalyptic Literature and Testaments. Um, but it comes from a a pseudepigraphal work called the Testament of Solomon. Okay, and so you can find this on Google. Uh, you shouldn't have any problems finding it out there. But in this work, uh, we see that that Solomon um, is in the process of building the temple. And there is this uh, young boy who is working for Solomon. And basically the story goes this way. Uh, there was a demon named uh, Ornias 
who was coming and afflicting the young boy whenever the sun was setting. And what he would do is he would take half of the boy's wages and the provisions that Solomon was given to him and that he would actually suck the right thumb of the boy and drain out his life through sucking his thumb. Now, I know that that sounds ridiculous. Yep. <laughs> like that, I, that sounds crazy, right? But But just listen to the story, okay? So uh, what Solomon does is he interrogates the boy and he's like, hey, like he, he basically says to him, he says, have I not loved you more than all of the artisans that I've hired who's working on the temple of God? He's like, and have I not been paying you double wages and giving you double the provisions? He says, so why are you growing thinner every day? And basically the boy says to you, he's like, listen, King, uh, here's what's happening to me. Whenever you dismiss us from work in the evenings, and the sun sets, I'm afflicted by an evil spirit who takes half of my pay and my provisions, and he is sucking the life out of my out of me, and that's why I'm growing thinner, All right? And so we see from there, as the story progresses, through the archangel Michael, the Lord grants to Solomon this ring that has a symbol on it, and it gives Solomon power over the demons. <laughs> now, again, this is a, a pseudepigraphal work, and I know that this sounds wild and, and crazy and out there, but the reality is that this was, this was a work that was out there. This, this, uh, it, was written, um, it was written, I think it was uh, 200, 300 BC, somewhere in that, that era. And so I, I know that that sounds crazy and it sounds wild, but this is a work that's, that's, you know, been out there. But so, so back to the story. So God gives Solomon this ring uh, through the archangel Michael. And basically what happens is it gives Solomon the ability to have power over the demons. It gives him the ability to, to, it gives him the ability to bind the demons. And so throughout the entire Testament of Solomon, it's just really interesting if you guys have never read it, uh, we see that uh, what happens is Solomon gives instructions to the boy to, uh, to bring the demon back with him uh, with the ring that God gives him. So the boy does that. He brings the ring back to to uh, Solomon with the demon. And we see that what happens is Solomon begins to interrogate the demons. And he learns their names. He learns what they're up to. And it's just so, so interesting because you, you have this whole connection with, you know, uh, astrology and, and Zodiac. And then not only that, but also um, with Greek mythology, uh, and with with the gods in in Greek mythology, or with the, the the Titans, actually. So there's a connection uh, to some of the divine council worldview that we've talked about. So really, really interesting stuff. Right. But but you can see here though, where uh, like I said, we we don't we don't think that the Testament of Solomon is scripture or anything like that. It's a pseudepigraphal work from the Second Temple period. But people were reading this during that era right from the time the, the second temple was built after the Babylonian exile until it was destroyed in AD 70, this would have been a common work that people would have known about. People would have read it. They would have been aware of it. And so this is the reason, one of the reasons, though I'd say the second reason, why um, 
why Jesus gets the title son of David applied to him whenever he's casting out demons, right? Because as we've seen here, we've established two lines now, one from scripture with David uh, dealing with uh, evil spirits with King Saul. And now um, from a, a pseudepigraphal works from the second temple period, that has Solomon uh, talking, uh, casting out demons through his ring. And Richie, if I'm not mistaken, there's actually occultic works out there that this is actually makes an appearance in as well, right? Which is right. some of the stuff that we've been asked about, <clears throat> which is the lesser key of Solomon and, and some of that work. So if you, you want to maybe expand on that a little bit from kind of your perspective and your angle. Uh, I came about those sort of same stories and categories from the occult side of things through the lesser keys of Solomon. And it comes from uh, like Hebrew mysticism and uh, sort of word of mouth and Hebrew tradition. Yeah. Okay. So you came, so yeah, one of the things that we, we, it was so interesting because whenever we started talking about some of this, um, you were already aware of it, right? Like I had come across some of it through Mike Heiser um, and some of his work with unseen realm and, you know, all that stuff. And then I like, I brought it to you and we were having a discussion about it and you already knew about it because of your, your past in the occult and then dealing right. with like the lesser key of Solomon and that kind of stuff. Right. And so basically it, for those of you guys who don't know what, you know, the, the keys of Solomon are, basically it's an occult work from the medieval era. Right. And, and basically though, what it's doing is it's taking some of these stories, right. And it's connecting, it's connecting itself back to like the Testament of Solomon, right? It's, it's uh, doing what some like Jonathan Peugeot have called uh, universal history. So we've already talked about this a little bit in some of our episodes, right? Uh, we talked about it in the episode with uh, cryptids, with the Irish mythology, right? With the Tuatha de Danon and the Fomorians, right? The, and how right. their story connects back to the Noah story. Right with a uh, her his granddaughter Cesare supposedly coming and founding uh, uh, Ireland. Right that 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 geographical era. Well, basically, what the testament of, or what the keys of Solomon is doing is it's doing the same thing. Right, it's connecting itself back to this older Solomonic tradition, which has which you do see uh, worked out in the stuff like Kabbalah and Hebrew mysticism, right? But what it's doing is it's trying to connect itself back to the Testament of Solomon from the second temple period. And it's, right. it's taking all of this stuff and it's using it to form an occultic practice that, you know, that comes from, from this lineage. So, um, so yeah. So uh, hopefully that, uh, I can't remember who asked the question about the key of Solomon, but that's kind of how it relates to some of this Solomonic tradition stuff, right? It, it kind of takes it and it kind of puts an occultic spin on it and kind of gives you a, a you know, it kind of reminds me in some ways of like Freemasonry, honestly. <laughs> um, right. I'm not looking to go down that, that rabbit hole today in this chin wag. That's a whole, <laughs> that's a whole yeah. other episode, but you know, that's basically what Freemasonry does too, right? Like it's right. Um, it, it, has this universal history to it where it's trying to connect itself back to this Solomonic tradition. And there, that's why you see a lot of overlap between like it and things like Kabbalah and, you know, Hebrew mysticism and like, why there's occultic stuff in it, like, cause it's, it's coming out of this type of line. Right. So. Right. 
Yep. So, but back to back to the messianic profile here. So, so now we've, as we've said, we've established two lines, right? David driving out spirits, and then Solomon in Second Temple history also doing the same thing with this ring. And so people were aware of this. They thought that the son of David, the Messiah, was going to come and that he would also drive out evil spirits. And so that's the reason why you see things like what we've seen here in, in our text in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 14, or Matthew 15, sorry, why this woman comes to him who has a daughter who is severely demon oppressed and said, calls him the son of David, right? She, she would have been familiar with some of these works as would have a lot of these people. And so it was a part of the messianic expectation. They, they knew that he would drive out demons. It would be a part of the Messiah's work. It was a uh, verification or a justification that he would come, he had come from the lineage of King David and was like him, but greater. So, um, and, you know, this is some of the reason too, why, um, you know, even in the early church, I think we had talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but, um, you know, this is one of the reasons why the church has been delegated this ministry. Like a part of our application in the last episode was, was that, um, we have to pick back up, uh, this type of ministry, right. Uh, this aspect of, of, uh, spiritual warfare and, uh, casting out demons and helping the demon oppressed and afflicted, you know, that kind of thing. And the reason why is because, you know, you, you see this in the new Testament with the church, right? Like you see the apostles, uh, themselves there, they also, uh, cast out demons. Right. And the reason, the reason why is because they have been united to Messiah, to Jesus, right? There, that's what the doctrine of union of Christ is, right? Like whenever we believe in Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, we are united to him, right? Paul uses uh, the, this union language whenever he's talking about baptism in Romans 6. He talks about that you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, right? Um, right. And that's why you see this language of union used all throughout the New Testament because we are, are united to Christ Jesus. We become one. And that's why the Bible uses this, this imagery of he is the head. We are the body, right? We are, we are one. We have that type of relationship. And so that's the reason why you see authority given to the apostles in the New Testament to cast out demons. And this is a, a point that I said that we would bring up um, in the last episode, but this goes on even after the age of the apostles. Right. This this goes out of the apostolic era into the to the uh, to the early church, like w w even with the early church fathers and some of the historians of the church. Um, this it, it's it's taboo to us today, right, Richie? Like like most Christians don't even think that something like demonic possession is even possible today. But that was not the viewpoint of the early church. Right. It was not the viewpoint of the early church. And I actually have some quotes pulled up here from a work that I've been compiling on, perhaps a book on demonology. We'll, we'll see. Um, but it's a, we're getting opinion. there. We're getting there, right? It's been a work that I've been working on for about a year now, but I have a section here on uh, uh, exorcism and demonology in the 
the early church, just to prove that it goes out of the, the apostolic era into the era of the early church. And so um, some of the quotes here that I'm going to read, um, again, this just goes to, to, to buffer, uh, or to, not to buffer, but it, it goes to bolster the point that I'm making here. So this, some of these quotes are from uh, people like Tertullian. So Tertullian, he lived in, uh, uh, he wrote this, what I'm about to read, in uh, AD 197. So the Apostle John died uh, in AD 100. So this is 97 years. This is even 100 years after the death of the Apostle John. So listen to what he says. So he says this. He says he basically proves that the ancient church was no stranger to the demonic or exorcisms. He says this. He says, we indeed affirm the existence of certain spiritual essences, nor is their name unfamiliar. Even the philosophers acknowledge these are demons. <laughs> Right. Yep. So, so we talked about this a little bit last week, right? The, the, the name that the philosophers, like the Greeks, gave these essences or these spirits was daemon, right? Yep. And so that's what he's talking about here. And so uh, he goes on here to say this uh, about these spirits and, and this type of thing. He says, thus far, we have been dealing only in words, but now we proceed to a proof of facts in which we shall show that under different names, God and demon, you have a real in, uh, identity. Let a person be brought before your tribunals who is plainly under demonical possession, daemon. He says, the wicked spirit bidden to speak by a follower of Christ will as readily make the truthful confession that he is a demon. As elsewhere, he has falsely asserted that he is a god, or, if you will, let there be produced one of the God-possessed as they are supposed. If they would not confess in their fear of lying to a Christian that they were demons, then and, then, uh, then and there shed the blood of the most imprudent follower of Christ. The truth is that neither themselves nor any of the others have claims to deity. Uh, you may see at once who, re who is really God and whether that is he and he alone whom Christians, uh, uh, Christians own. Um, let me see here. It says, also whether you are to believe in him, to worship him. Uh, but he says, at once, the, uh, but at once they, the demons, will say, who is the Christ? Is he uh, not rather up in the heavens, thence about to come again? All the authority and power we have given over them is from our naming the name of Christ. So basically what Tertullian is saying here is that all the power and the authority that we have, over them, he's talking about the early church here who is bringing people before tribunals and, and talk and, you know, trying to converse with it. He says, all of the power and the authority that we have over them is from using the name of Christ. Right. So that's, that's interesting, right? Because he's right. making a connection back here to Jesus, right? He is the, son of David. He is the Messiah. We are united to him, right? And because we are united to him, we too, he says, have authority and power over the demons, right? So really, really interesting. So it just goes to, to bolster what I'm saying here that the early church, um, they weren't strangers to this. This was something that 
that left that, that went out of the apostolic era into the early church. And, and you see this all throughout the church fathers. Um, it's, it's all over the place. And so um, got a few other quotes here that I'll, that I'll read. Um, this one is from, uh, let's see, Justin, this is from Justin Martyr. Um, and this is from his dialogues, uh, dialogue with Trifo. It's uh, 85, uh, one through three. And he says this, he says, for every demon, when exercised in the name of this very son of God, who is the firstborn of every creature who became man by the virgin who suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, who died and rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven is overcome and subdued. So Justin Martyr and Christians are subduing and overcoming demons through the name of the son of God. Right. <laughs> like he says, he says, but though you exercise any demon in the name of any of those who were among you, either of kings or righteous men or pro prophets or patriarchs, it will not be subject to you. But if you exercise it in the name of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, it will perhaps be subject to you. Now, assuredly, you exorcists, I have said, make use of craft when they exercise even as the Gentiles do and employ fumigations and incantations. So just again, goes to show like this is common, right? right. This, this yep. isn't. Um, yeah. So uh, here's a quote from origin, which uh, this was uh, against. Uh, he wrote this against a, a critic of Christianity called Celsus uh, or Celsus. He was a pagan who was trying to uh, disprove Christianity, but he is, he said, uh, he says uh, that Celsus asserts that it is by the name of certain demons and by the use of incantations that the Christians appear, uh, appear to be possessed of power. So basically he was saying Celsus, Celsus, who is a non-Christian, who is a pagan, uh, he sees demons. He thinks that they were using incantations <laughs> to cast out demons. So like, so yep. it's not, it's not just like, even the pagans were witnessing this authority that, that Christians had exactly. in, the, in the name of Jesus. So uh, anyway, really, really fascinating stuff. You got anything else you want to add to that before we, we move on? No, I'm good. Let's move on. All right. Well, so that's it on our messianic profile section. Now, the last section that we're going to talk about today was a question that we had gotten in the sword and staff discussion group on Facebook, which was, is it possible um, to, let me, let me try to find the wording here. Um, let me see. There was another one here that I wanted to maybe kick around at the episode, at the end of it on HP. Oh, and, to, and to just go back to the Solomonic tradition stuff. Oh like, yeah, go ahead. There's, there's so much more that I got into, but it's oh, just yeah. a sketch connection right now. Yeah. That's keeping me from really damp me out. So yeah. that's what was kind of short on it. Yeah. Because you, I mean, you know, all the technical issues we've been having this episode. Oh yeah. We've had tons of technical issues. Yep. Um, that's what I'm saying. I'm sure that this episode is going to sound all over the place and it's probably going to sound oh, yeah. floppy and you know, uh, it is what it is for today. 
Um, but one of the questions that we got in the Sword and Staff group was, um, it says, I know that Eden was created and God expelled Adam and Eve, but what happened to it? Like the actual physical place during the days before the flood, uh, could people actually see it being guarded by cherubim and a flaming sword? Or did it turn invisible somehow? Um, and what happened to it after the flood? Looking at a pic of Valinor from the Lord of the Rings show got me thinking about it. So <laughs> uh, really interesting question. Really good question. Right. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of different answers on this uh, on this question. Um, you know, you... You see a lot of people who are modern, you know, modern Christians who, you know, try, who are very interested in trying to find the actual location by using the historical data that we see in Genesis, like trying yeah. to, you know, yeah, I've seen them like trace the rivers back. That's, that's usually what you see, right? You usually see them. Uh, they're like, well, we know where yep. the, the Tigris and the Euphrates are at. So they're trying to find the location of the Gihon and the Pishon, trying to trace it back, trying to find a point. Yep. Um, you know, and then there are some people who who hypothesize that Noah's flood maybe changed the changed those rivers up, and so they're not really sure. Um, I kind of take the classical view of it. I, I I I don't think that it's somewhere that you can find geographically, and and the reason why is basically because it it is the abode linking heaven and earth <laughs> right like it's it's that that overlap spot right it's that high place right. where the throne of god resides right it, it is a spot that is linking uh heaven and earth so I, I don't think that it's so there's that part of it um and uh it it, it appears to me that in scripture um, the 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 physical part of it won't won't be available back to humanity until the new creation, right? So, like, whenever you you read Revelation, you know, twenty one, uh, you know, you see the the city of God, which we've already talked about some in this episode, right? Um, you you see the city of God finally coming down out of heaven. Uh, and coming back down to earth. And it talks about that God has once again made his throne with man, right? So it's, it's, it's not this place that you're going to be able right. to physically go and find. Um, so I would say that, you know, like uh, the guardedness, right? By the cherubim with the flaming sword. That's another indicator that like this, this isn't somewhere that we can go again, right? So I, I think right. that, I think ultimately that all all attempts to try to find this, I think, is is you know kind of you know in vain. Like you're not going to find it. It's this spirit. It's this place that connects heaven and earth. And you know, and even if you could find it, it's it's not like you could ever find it and go back to it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so uh, so can we go back to it? Um, not in a physical sense yet, but spiritually. We actually go back to it, I would say, every week. <laughs> so, um, so in some like, it, it, I'll say that ultimately, this is this is basically right. what uh, Israel's temple and the tabernacle and the church, uh, all of these things, symbolize that there is a spiritual uh, return 
to Eden. It's already the language is already, but not yet. So already we ascend back to have, uh, to to Eden. We ascend the holy mountain, right? We've talked about Eden being this holy mountain, um, but we've not returned yet there physically, right? Um, so, uh, but so, uh, so for some examples of this. Uh, you see this foreshadowed in Israel and in their temple and their tabernacle. Like whenever you you go to it, it, it we've talked. I think we've talked about it here, or I've, I've definitely talked about it in sermons at New Haven Church. Um, the the garden has this three tiered construction, right? It's it's garden, land, world, right? You've got the garden at the top of the mountain. You've got the land of Eden, and then you've got the world, right? It talks about that the rivers right. flow out of Eden right? It, it flows from the garden out into the land of Eden, out into the world, right? And even in the garden itself, it has a three-tiered construction, right? You've got tree of life, and then you've got tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you've got fig tree. That's that's really important whenever you hit the gospels later on. And I'll, we'll talk about why that's important later on. But even the garden itself has a three-tiered construction. And whenever you hit to Israel, whenever you hit in the text, uh, in Exodus, and then later on, whenever Solomon uh, starts to build the temple uh, during his reign uh, as the king, uh, you, you see that there's a lot of garden imagery used in the temple, right? And basically what, what it was, was Israel knew that it was this return to the garden in some sense, right? And so it has the temple and the tabernacle. It had the same three-tiered construction that Eden had, right? So we had the garden land world part. And then whenever you had uh, the temple and the tabernacle, you had the holy place, or you had the most holy place, the holy place, and then the outer court, right? And so that corresponds with the holy, the most holy place corresponds with the garden, Right. And in the, and think, I mean, even think about it imagery wise, like in the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. Right. And in the Ark of the Covenant, one of the things that you had there was the tree, which was Aaron's rod budding, his staff. Right. So it's like, it's like the tree of life. And then you've, you know, you've got the manna, right, which fell from heaven. So you, you have eating there, and then you have the, the tables of the law there, which are God commands. I mean, it's, it's pointing you back to the garden, right, where God gave this tree that gave life to Adam and Eve, and he gives them these commands, right? So that's what's going on in the Ark of the Covenant. Like God's presence comes down on the Ark of the Covenant in the theophonic glory cloud just as his presence came down in the garden in the cool of the day, right? And so, but it's, as you walk from the courtyard, uh, you can just Google Israel Tabernacle or Israel Temple ESV Study Bible. It's got some great uh, depictions of it. Um, But what would happen is you would walk out in the courtyard into the holy place. And the first thing that you would find, Richie, whenever you walked in was this veil that had a cherubim on it. Yeah, yep. So it's like you're going past the cherubim with the with its flaming sword, and you're going back up the holy mountain. And you even have step ups, like uh, when when the the when the temple is built later on. Like Solomon builds, like there's these steps, right? Like it's it literally is ascending Mount Zion, you know, later on. Um, so that you actually do have that physical uh, going up part later on, but. Whenever you come in, though, into the temple, uh, 
uh, you had these golden pomegranate trees, right? Like you had, uh, you know, on the walls and they had these fruits on it and you had the, the veil with the cherubim and all that, right? And then you've got this, the menorah, which is this gigantic, uh, like tree is basically what it's like. And it's like yep. the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, sitting there in the holy place, which would have corresponded to, uh, you know, coming down the second part of the garden. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'll, I'll get into that here in a minute. But uh, if you hear any rustling here, my daughter is in my office right now. But uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so um, but yeah, so that's basically what Israel's temple and tabernacle. That's that's what they were driving at is that they were able to at least in some sense, start the process of going back to paradise. And that's why it's decorated in all of this, you know, this, this imagery. Um, now, now I want to say this, um, that was foreshadowing, right? Like uh, not, right. not everybody, not everybody had this experience, right? Only the high priest one time a year, could actually go into the Holy of Holies. Like he, the, no, like the other priests couldn't do that. He was the only one and he had to go one time a year, you know, and he had to go under all these certain circumstances, right? Like, you know, and there were these rituals that had to, to happen for that, to, you know, for that to occur. Like, you know, there was the sprinkling of blood on the, you know, the, the instruments in there to purify them. And, you know, he had to be purified. Like there was this whole, you know, ceremonial uh, process for that to happen. Now, Jesus, though, fulfills what this was foreshadowing, okay? So here's right. what's going on. He, he makes a way so that all of us can become priests and go into the Holy of Holies where God resides. And that's what the church now is. It's this temple of God. So let me talk about it here. This, this is mind-blowing, okay? I think you guys are going to enjoy this. I think this will make up for any of the audio issues we've had in this episode. So, uh, all right. So think about, think about it, okay? Let's think of the, the, the life <laughs> and the ministry of Jesus, okay? Let's imagine that in our heads. So, and this is going to make, some, make sense of some of the, what seem to be random details in the Gospels, okay? So, uh, Jesus, uh, before right before he's crucified, um, there's this story of Jesus cursing a fig tree, right? And it just seems seems to be so random, right? Right. Like it just seems to be so random. Like Jesus just randomly curses this fig tree and it and it withers, right? And so, if you didn't know. If you weren't able to do biblical theology, that sounds like a random detail. But whenever you fit it in the scheme of biblical theology and you've got the garden in mind, you see that it's not a random detail at all. So what was it that was at the bottom of the garden, right? Well, you had, if, if you could have this picture, what you would have is at the top, imagine you've got this holy mountain, right? This big holy mountain. And at the top of it, you have the tree of life at the summit, right? And the waters are coming down from the top of the holy mountain, right? The four rivers, and then they branch off and go down the world. But as you descend the holy mountain, in the middle of the mountain, you've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So it's lower. And then below that one, you've got the fig tree at the bottom of the mountain, okay? This is, you see this kind of imagery used in like St. Ephraim the Syrian uh, and, and his hymns and poems on 
on Genesis, they, this is really ingrained in patristic theology, this type of imagery. And you can actually see it reflected in uh, icon, uh, iconography uh, out there in Christendom. So, so this isn't just me. This is imagery that Christians have been uh, depicting for, for centuries now. So anyway, all right. So, so Jesus curses the fig tree, right? Why right. does he curse the fig tree? Well, he is beginning his ascent back up the holy mountain right as the great high priest he is about to ascend the holy mountain and he's starting now at the base of of paradise right so he curses the fig tree uh which is where the man and the woman try uh tried to clothe themselves right they they make for themselves garments to to cover themselves right so jesus is basically stripping that away right like it's he's undoing that right and then uh he he after this he's got garments of skin ripped off of him right like god later on you know clothes adam and eve with garments of skin you know that whole thing and what happens to jesus he's tied up he's beaten and what's ripped off of him like the text like explicitly talks about that his clothing is ripped off but also his skin is ripped off, right? And the, you can actually right. see into like the wounds and things like that. Like later on, Thomas is going to to you know stick his fingers and his wound in his side from the 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 uh, you know lance that he's he's uh, the spear you know that he's that the Roman centurion uh, stabbed him with. Um, so, but okay, all right. So Jesus is starting his ascent back up the holy mountain, <laughs> okay? And so he curses the fig tree, right? Like the attempt of man and woman to clothe themselves. The garments of skin are ripped off of Jesus. And then he's put up on a cross in between what, Richie? Between two thieves. Between two thieves. Two trees. Two trees, right? Two trees, two trees, right? Yep. Which is the knowledge, which is like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So, I mean, think about the story. Think about the narrative in the Gospels, right? You have what? You have a, you have two thieves, but one is yep. repentant and good. Right. And what does Jesus tell that thief? Today you will be with me in paradise, right? And then on the other side, you've got the other thief who is unrepentant or bad. So it's like the trees of knowledge of good and evil here. And Jesus is is on a tree between them at the summit, right? Higher up, you know, and that you see this depicted in iconography and in drawing, like in drawings, right? Right, right. Okay. And so whenever he dies, Richie, okay, there's an earthquake. And what happens? Do you know? The veil is torn in the temple. Right. Yep. <laughs> so this the would think about the veil, which we we just mentioned, right? The veil is the cherubim who is guarding the way back to Eden. It's it's yep. torn in half from the top to the bottom, right? It's 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 keeping it's it's it keeps you from going in right it's it's the 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 cherubim that's guarding the way back to it's tore completely torn half right and after after that 
what is it that flows from Jesus? There is a river of blood and water. Water, yep. That flows out from the top of the holy mountain, right? Because Jesus has ascended the holy mountain, right? He cursed the fig tree. He, uh, he, he, uh, you know, was bet- he passes past or between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And then he's enthroned above them as the tree of life, right? And so from his side flows out rivers of blood and water, just like the rivers that flowed out of Eden from the top of the holy mountain out into the world, right? This is some mystical theology right here. It's what, what the gospel yeah. what the yeah. gospel writers are doing is absolutely st- stunning and amazing. Like they're they're doing this these these aren't just random details. They're in there for a reason. They're they're showing that Jesus is ascending the holy mountain and that he well we're we're going to get to it. All right. So where but let me ask you. Do you know where the 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 river of blood and water where it lands? It lands on the Roman centurion who stabs him. Yep. So yep. Like, it's like the rivers flowing out of Eden, going out to water the nations. <laughs> exactly. Right? So it's, yep. Rome is watered. And then later on, Rome's going to become a Christian nation just a few hundred years later um, because of this event. But, uh, but anyway, um, so temple, the veil is torn in the temple um jesus has ascended the holy mountain right and now we are again united to him right we are united to him he is the head we are the body this is the reason why the church uh it gets called you know uh, things like a kingdom of priests later on right jesus tears the veil in the temple he opens the way back up to eden and now the church gets all of this garden language assigned to it i mean think about it john 15 right you i am the vine you are the branches right right and whenever he i you abide in me and i in you you will bear much fruit right paul in galatians talks about the fruits of the spirit that believers bear who are united to christ um then you know then you've got the uh, this is the reason why jesus talks with the parables that he does right he talks about you know uh, the kingdom of god is like a mustard seed that grows into this great tree and it gives a home to the you know to the even though it's the smallest of seeds it it grows into the biggest trees and it gives you know the home to the birds and you know all that kind of stuff um this is the reason why the church is given imagery because the way back to eden has been opened up and every time we gather together the writer of hebrews says in hebrews 12 we ascend the holy mountain we we go back to eden right we go back to eden spiritually right um and it's all because jesus ascended the holy mountain for us he 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 he, and like it's it's amazing it's in this like reverse order right like like he's going like it's specifically like it's it's made to be like that like curses the fig tree then he's got the you know the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the with the two thieves and then he's enthroned above them 
you know, as a tree of life. And, um, you know, and that's why Jesus says that if you don't eat his flesh and blood, you have no life in you. You know, it's, it's, it's the cause of that. And so every time we go, we gather together spiritually, we are sending back to paradise. And that's why we get the languages ascribed to us. And that's what happens. I mean, think about it. Like you come through the door, right? It's like you come out of the, the courtyard surrounding the temple, right? You, you come in to the holy place, right? Which is, you know, you come into your building and then at the top this is you know, traditionally in churches um, you've got the, the, the altar or the, you know, the Lord's table, depending whatever tradition you're from, you have it sitting at the, the, the back, right? The top, right? The altar. And that's where the Lord's table, uh, that's where the commune, that's where communion, the Eucharist happens. Um, and that's very intentional because it's drawing on this pattern that you see here in the garden of Eden and then in Jesus's crucifixion, right? So it's like you would come out of the courtyard of the temple, you go to the holy place, and then whenever you go up to the Lord's table and eat of the manna that's in the Ark of the Covenant, right? You, you, you've, you've ascended into the most holy place. So that's, so can we, do we get back to Eden? Like, yes and no. Like, can we get back to it? Well, yep, physically, yes and no, in a sense. Yes and no. Spiritually, yes, we do. Uh, whenever we we gather together, we ascend the holy mountain, right? And we and whenever we're right. doing communion, we're eating of the tree of life. You know, that's that's the reason why you know Paul uses such high language. You know, of the Lord's Supper in First Corinthians. You know, he talks about those who are you know, eating unworthily, like it's a means of death to them, right? Like he said, some of you have like fallen asleep, you're dying. And you're, it's because you're not discerning the body and blood of the Lord. Um, but if, if that's true for those who eat unworthily, then what's true of those who do eat worthily? Who, then it's obviously the opposite of being a means of death. It's a means of, of life, right? Which, which it's, that's why we, it's, you know, it's, it's the tree of life. It's eating the flesh and blood of Jesus. He says, if you don't eat it, then you have no life in you. Um, so that's, that's what's going on there. So, um, but I'll say this, we, one day we will physically enter into this place again, right? We've already alluded to that, you know, with revelation chapter 21, right? The, the heavenly city is going to come back down to earth, right? And one of the things that's explicitly said there. Um, in Revelation uh, chapter 21, um, it's uh, at the end of the chapter here, uh, we actually see that the tree of life is going to be back, right? Um, actually, it's in Revelation 22. He says, uh, the angel showed me the river of the water of life. So the rivers <laughs> flowing out of the throne room of God again, yep. right? I see the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God into the lamb. So it's flowing just like it did out of Eden from the throne room. And it says, uh, and it flowed through the middle of the street of the city on, and on either side of the river was the tree of life with its 12 kind of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So 
we're going to be a part. We're going to enter back into this city one day when it comes back down from heaven. And whenever heaven and earth, that fracture between the two is finally healed, right? Whenever heaven and earth are joined back together, this greater Eden will be the thing that links it and unites it back together. And we will be able to physically eat of the tree of life again. We get to do that now already in the gathering of the church, in the eating and the feasting of the Eucharist. And yeah, so we have this to, to sustain us now and we have this to look forward to. So hopefully right. that answers that question. We could have probably done a whole episode. Podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's so much yep. more. But I think that that's going to be a, a great, this will, will kind of wrap us up, but I think that'll actually be a beautiful, beautiful dra- uh, backdrop um, for what we're going to actually be discussing in the upcoming uh, episodes of Sword and Staff. So next week, we're going to be starting a new series on re-enchantment. So, uh, you know, we, we've been talking about this for a while now, right? That how Christianity oh, yeah. re-enchants everything, right? And so some of the things that we're going to be looking at is how Christianity re-enchants all of our worldview from our identity and who we are, right? Like Christianity has something to say about that right? We're not worms, right? That's not how we're depicted. The regenerate believer is a son of God or a daughter of God, a child of God, right? So that is a, I mean, think about that. I mean, that in terms of identity, like if you're in Christ Jesus, you are a son of the living God. I mean, you can't get any higher than that. The scripture has lots of other things to say about our identity, and who we are in Christ. So we're going to look at that. We're going to talk about how we've already talked about how Christianity re-enchants our view of the world. I mean, that's what we did in the whole spiritual being series. Um, but we're going to look at that a little bit more from some different angles. Um, we'll look at how uh, Christianity re-enchants the church. Um, we've talked about that a little bit today and how it re-enchants the, our, the sacraments and you know, and, and all of those things. So we're going to be spending a few episodes on this and that should lead us right up into Halloween where we'll be discussing all kinds of interesting things in the month of October related to Halloween. We'll do an episode on is Halloween pagan. Um, you know, uh, we've got a lot of stuff in store for that month. And so we're really looking forward to doing that. Richie, you got anything else to add to any of that? Um, I think you covered it pretty good. Yeah, here soon we're going to do an episode where we probably talk about our stories a little bit because I know that people have been asking Oh yeah, uh, about wanting to hear Richie's story. So we're going to get on that. Richie's, yeah. we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. So we're, we're going to get to it. And uh, we maybe we'll do that during the month of October since there's some creepy, there's some creepy stuff involved in, in that story. So uh, yeah, should... speaking of uh, creepy stuff, you want to tell them about the the trip we're planning yeah yeah so uh here on i think it's september 8th was what the date you gave me right yep and then september the 9th will be a podcast day so september the 8th we are planning on going and visiting point pleasant west virginia which is obviously for those of you who have been listening in and uh, to the uncut episodes and you know, the, high strangeness ground zero it, in West it, Virginia. It is high strangeness ground zero in West Virginia. It's where all of the Mothman uh, phenomena 
happened and i guess happens uh happens yeah happens yeah. uh and so it's also where you know the whole men in black and you know men in black and all that stuff so uh planning on going and uh checking that out we'll probably shoot some video footage while we're out there maybe you throw oh, yeah. some of it up on social media some definitely some pictures and you know, maybe we'll do some live videos, you know, uh, kind of talking about some of the stuff that's there, you know, be really, really interesting. Um, what we'll give away, I'm not sure how we're going to divide it up yet. If we're going to give some of it away exclusively to patrons, we've not talked about that, or if we're going to put it out there for everybody, I'm sure that some of it will all will be out there for everybody. Maybe we'll do some exclusive things for patrons. We'll see. We'll get it right. planned out. But, um, but yeah, that's some of the plans. So that should be interesting too, leading up to, uh, uh october and halloween so all right well guys if there's anything that you would like for us to discuss on a chin wag you can feel free to send that to us on social media or at our email which is order of the sword and staff at gmail.com also make sure to become a patron over at our patreon Whenever you sign up and you become a patron, we have multiple tiers that you can be a part of, right? That you can, you can join the order. Uh, but whenever you become a patron, you actually will get these episodes before they drop anywhere else. They drop on patron, Patreon first for our patrons. Also, if you sign up and you become a patron for just $5 a month, you get the sword and staff uncut. And the Sword and Staff Uncut is basically longer versions of our episodes where Richie and I usually have at least 30 more minutes of extra content. It's yeah, usually the least. Yeah, at least. Yeah, I think the last one was an hour. Um, but that's the place where Richie and I discuss the things that we don't want to discuss. <laughs> yeah, it's going to get us in trouble or that's that's sketchy and you know that that kind of stuff. But uh, but if you guys want that, you can get those conversations. All you've got to do is head over to our Patreon and become a patron for just five bucks a month. Uh, so you can do that by visiting www.patreon.com backslash Sword and Staff Order. You can get the uncut versions. And so make sure to sign up if you're interested in that. So, well, hopefully this episode turned out well. Hopefully you guys uh, have enjoyed it, even though we've had many, many audio and technical difficulties, but many, many, many difficulties. Richie dropped out entirely from the episode at one point. And so I had to stop stop and power went out. Yeah. Like whenever I was talking about the test of Masala stuff, I literally was just talk. Yeah. Richie's power went off and I, I was just talking for like 10 minutes. He, I was thinking he's going to come back at some point and he never did. So I had to actually hit the pause <laughs> button and, and uh, drop us back in. So, uh, but hopefully hey, we made it. Yeah, we made it. Hopefully this episode is still enjoyable. Hopefully you guys learned something and uh, next week we should be back together in person and things should be back to normal. So, oh, you can count on it. Yep. Yeah. And so, well guys, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.